We bow our heads and pray. Gracious God and Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable to you through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. The late Bertrand Russell, the uh, renowned British agnostic, authored a small publication many years ago entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And one of the reasons he cited for his unbelief was the Christian doctrine of everlasting punishment in hell. Uh, Russell simply could not harmonize Christ's doctrine of hell with the concept of a just and a benevolent God. And Russell's not alone. Hell is no longer the target of those outside the church. Today, a disturbing number, number of professing Christians question the doctrine as well. And of all the teachings of Christianity, the doctrine of hell is probably the most troubling of all. And it's no secret that preachers of every stripe, conservative as well as those who are not, rarely mention it. Perhaps more than any other time in history, hell, we might say, is under fire in a matter of speaking. I direct your attention to the sermon outline in your bulletin. Roman numeral one, the nature of hell. And Matthew 25 contains Christ's parable of the sheep and the goats. So when our Lord returns, he'll gather all the nations before him as a shepherd will separate sheep from goats. And the sheep, the believers, he'll place on his right, the goats, the unbelievers on his left. And he will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. Letter A in your outline, that is banishment. The unbelievers are banished from Christ's presence. And it, it reminded me of the banishment of Adam and Eve from the garden. They were banished from the presence of the Lord there as well, except this banishment in Matthew 25 is permanent and it is much more serious. Letter B, these individuals are cursed. Depart from me, you cursed, meaning doomed or damned. And the idea here is that they doom themselves. Compare that verse with verse 34 in Matthew 25. We, we hear, the sheep are blessed by my Father. Now Jesus does not say to the damned, depart from me, you who are cursed by my Father. In other words, the goats have brought down the curse upon themselves. The blessedness of the righteous is due exclusively to the grace of God in Christ, while the wicked are to blame for their own cursedness, their own damnation. And let her see, depart into the eternal fire, that is, punishment. 
Now there's a debate about whether this fire is real or whether it's figurative, you know, symbolic. But either way, the punishment is excruciatingly awful, and it's intended to be. The purpose of this teaching about hell is to turn us from our sins and to prepare us to believe in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that none of us will ever go to that place. In letter D, this eternal fire is prepared not for humanity, but for the devil and his angels. From the foundation of the world, a kingdom has been prepared for the righteous, and hell has been prepared not for us, but for the devil and his minions. So that history is headed toward a divided end. For each one of us, history ends in either heaven or it ends in hell. Roman numeral two, the necessity of hell. The nature of God demands it. Letter A, God is holy and righteous, meaning number one, he does not commit sin, and number two, he cannot ignore sin. He cannot behave as if it's never happened. God says repeatedly in the Old Testament that he forgives the iniquity, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Now, in saying that by, he will by no means clear the guilty, he is declaring his righteousness. God is almost proud of the fact that he will not let the wicked get off. He simply won't. That's righteousness, and it's a good thing. Letter B, the enormity of sin has been lost upon us today. As years ago, Carl Menninger, Dr. Menninger wrote an article uh, entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? There is no more shame. We minimize sin. We justify it in various ways. We excuse it for various reasons. But point number one, we sin against an infinite being. If you and I threaten the President of the United States, that's a much more serious matter than if you or I threaten our next door neighbor. And it's because of the position the President occupies. Now God is infinite in majesty, in status, in holiness, and in might. He is a being without limit, and to sin against him is to sin without limit, because you sin against an infinite being, and it merits an infinite punishment. Number two, sin is not just individual actions, but it is a condition. It is a state of being, a disposition that we have that is irreversibly opposed to God. Genesis 8 reads, every inclination of our hearts is evil from childhood. And I think a child's most common words are no and mine. Letter C, retribution versus rehabilitation. Number one, rehabilitation seeks to transform the offender. That's where we get the word penitentiary from. It's a place where you're supposed to go and contemplate your sinfulness, your awfulness, and repent. That's not to say it happens, but that was the intent. On the other hand, number two, retribution seeks to deprive the offender of any gain 
from his offenses. It's depriving someone of something. That's retribution. And that is justice. It's the cornerstone of justice. Depriving the offender of his ill-gotten gain strips him of his rights, his privileges, his freedom, and his relationships. Why? Because his criminality has deprived others of their rights, their privileges, their freedom, and their relationships. And to let such a person walk is an intolerable injustice. Our hearts cry out against such a thing. Conscience cries out for a redress of the wrong. And that's why I cite the reading from Revelation. John writes, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be as were to be killed as they themselves had been. Many of the psalms echo this very same idea. The psalmist cries out time and again, How long, O Lord, will you stand by while the wicked do their worst? You see, sin creates an imbalance in the scales of justice. Our consciences know that, and only retribution can restore the balance. Our criminal justice system today is almost totally dominated by the ideology of rehabilitation. Retribution, which is the cornerstone of justice, is a thing of the past. Christians who deny the doctrine of eternal punishment like to reimagine hell as a place of rehabilitation, sort of like the Roman uh, idea of purgatory. You go in for a while and you supposedly come out better, but no. The Bible teaches that God rehabilitates us in this life, not in the afterlife, not in the next. This life is about rehabilitation through daily repentance and faith in Jesus. Hell is all about justice. It's all about retribution, finally. And letter D, ceaseless sinning demands ceaseless punishment. That is to say, there is no repentance in hell. There is no turning toward God. There's no remorse over sin. Revelation 22 describes those in hell as those who love to continue in sin and in falsehood. That's what they're doing in hell. Life in hell is characterized by the scriptures as weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what is gnashing of teeth but anger? Anger expressed toward the holy and righteous God. Those in hell are eternally opposed to God and to the righteous. And so what is God to do? What is he to do? What he does is what we do here in this life those individuals who are incorrigible, who will not repent, who will not change, who will not be rehabilitated, what do we do? We cordon them off from the rest of us. That's what God does with hell. He protects us 
from them. And that, in the Bible, is an occasion for praise. Letter E. For many today, hell creates a moral problem. But for the biblical writers, hell is God's solution to a moral problem. And that moral problem is God's apparent reluctance or his slowness to avenge wickedness. The reading from Romans chapter 3 for tonight, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, meaning in this mean, by, this, by this means God is satisfying righteousness. He's satisfying justice. This is what justice is. It is propitiation through the blood of Christ rather than your blood and mine. And Paul goes on, this was to show God's righteousness. It shows his ability to act justly because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. And that, there's the moral problem. He's passing over sins age after age after age. And it appears that he stands by idly while the wicked do their worst. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. That's why he punished Jesus. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, that he might balance the scales of justice on the back of our Lord Jesus Christ. To show that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now the real moral problem is not that there is a hell. Hell testifies to God's morality. But the ultimate evidence of God's morality is the cross. At the cross, God spared us from eternal punishment by punishing his son for you, for me, and for the world. God will by no means clear the guilty, and he has made his own son guilty for us that we might be made innocent in him. And we've been made innocent we have been forgiven in him. That's the good news. It's a done deal. You are free from your sin. That's the good news. Hell might be a moral problem for some, but it was not a moral problem for John the Baptist, who spoke of Jesus in this way, quote, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will gather the wheat into his barn, that's the harvest of souls, of the saved. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Letter F. Hell was not a moral problem for Jesus, nor should it be for us. Jesus spoke of hell early and often. He spoke of it as a place of outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said, it is a place where their worm dies not and their fire is never quenched. We should believe in the biblical doctrine of hell because Jesus taught it. Through his suffering and death, he saved us from it. And therefore, he's the ultimate expert on it. 
I want to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis, who wrote the following regarding hell. Quote, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay within my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. And it does. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.